Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, John Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss the corporate world's impact on public education. Just over 10 years ago, in February of 2004, Bill Gates stated that he would not hire an American high school graduate. He believed that our education system was not preparing graduates for today's workforce. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have granted hundreds of millions of dollars to schools throughout the U.S. To qualify for their competitive grants, schools must show that they are meeting certain criteria, such as individual education plans, cooperative assignments, etc. The Gates impact may not be looked upon as a negative, but how about Pearson Education? Pearson owns education publishers such as Prentice Hall and Scott Forsman. They also license use of their Internet programs. Pearson earns billions from U.S. public schools, so it is safe to say they have a vested interest in seeing certain policies remain in place. My guests today will lend their expertise to topics related to the corporate world's impact on public education. My first guest, Stan Karp, is the director of the Secondary Reform Project for New Jersey's Education Law Center and editor of the Rethinking Schools Journal. Mr. Karp taught English and journalism to high school students for 30 years. He has co-edited several books, including Rethinking Our Classrooms, Teaching for Equity and Justice, and Rethinking School Reform, Views from the Classroom. Stan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Hey, it's great to have you. Stan, what are some of the ways corporate influence impacts public education? Well, there are many ways, but I think one way is to think about three main ones. Uh, One is simply direct uh, commercial penetration and uh, profit-making around a $600 billion annual market. Uh, The K-12 market uh, nationally, which is mostly state and local, but also federal spending, uh, accounts for about $600 billion and historically has been protected by public control and public transparency from commercial penetration. But a lot of this has changed in recent years, um, and a lot of it has to do with the increased amounts of uh, resources being spent on things like testing. You know, in your opening, you mentioned Pearson. Well, I guess it's about uh, 12 years ago, in 2002, around the time that Bill Gates made that comment, uh, the federal No Child Left Behind law was passed. And before that federal law was passed, most districts would test kids once in elementary school, once in middle school, and again in high school. But under the No Child Left Behind mandates, all schools in all 50 states began testing kids every year in every grade, uh, from grades 3 to 8, every um, in English and math, and again in science, and then again in high school. And this, for example, was a massive increase in the amount of testing and expenses spent on developing tests, on preparing for tests, on scoring tests. Uh, As a matter of fact, the CEO of Pearson um, at the time when he saw the No Child Left Behind law, he said, um, this looks like our business plan. 
wow. a very direct uh, indication of how much money is to be made in what's supposed to be a public common good. Another area uh, of corporate influence uh, refers to the privatization of education policymaking. You mentioned the many millions of dollars that Gates had spent on education grants. There are three or four large private foundations, Gates being one, Another being the Broad Foundation based in California, based on the Eli Broad real estate and housing uh, billionaire's fortune, and also the Walton Foundation from the Walton family and the Dell Foundation from the Dell Computers. And all of those, corporate, uh, those private foundations have been promoting particular reforms tied to their grants. So districts that are under financial pressure have uh, agreed to adopt new sets of common core standards or new tests associated with those standards. Or Broad specializes in giving corporate management training to superintendents who then are hired to run large urban school systems. Dell and Walton especially fund uh, large charter management networks, especially including for private, uh, for profit charter management networks and promoting vouchers, which allows public funds to be used to pay private tuition. So the privatization of education policy through the use of grant making. And I guess a third would be the promotion of reforms that are designed really to reduce the role of educators and teachers, uh, organizations in, um, setting education policy, and to create a less experienced, less stable, less secure, and ultimately less expensive professional teaching staff by promoting things like uh, Teach for America, where well-intentioned graduates get five weeks of training and might replace uh, a professionally credentialed teacher in a district where schools are closing and staff is being laid off but younger, less expensive, less experienced uh, interns are being hired. Uh, other attempts to do the same thing would be to erode tenure and seniority rights, which already uh, disappeared in many parts of the country, and to promote a kind of test-based evaluation, which both promotes the testing and also reduces the professional autonomy that teachers have historically had over their profession. So all of these are ways in which corporate influence is being uh, in, um, felt both in the creation of policy and in the actual profiteering around expenditures. Okay. Now, Stan, is there direct evidence that these big corporations are pumping money into lobbying to get p politicians to, to pass these laws that, that force these uh, policies on schools? Well, yes. Actually, it's it's gone beyond lobbying to actually staffing the um, – the institutions that are making policy. For example, one of the things that has really changed in the last 10 years is the influence of um, hedge fund and uh, very rich people in the making of education policy at the federal and state level. For example, I'm in New Jersey. Uh, as you may know, we have a very prominent governor in New Jersey named Chris Christie, who has done a lot to cut school budgets and also has made school reform a very prominent part of his agenda. Well, one of the ways those policies come together is in the first year of the Christie administration, he cut $1 billion out of the state education budget um, because he wanted to repeal a millionaire's tax. Well, the kind of millionaire that he is lowering taxes includes one David Tepper. 
David Tepper is the highest paid hedge fund manager in the country. He runs something called the Appaloosa Hedge Fund. Last year, he made $3.5 billion wow. of personal income. In 2009, he made $4 billion, which was equal to two-thirds of the um, salaries of all the teachers in New Jersey who teach about 700,000 kids. So what you have is, a, is policy that's reducing the uh, taxes of billionaires like Tepper, and then Tepper went and started an education reform organization called Better Education for Kids, which is connected to Michelle Rhee's National Students First organization. Michelle Rhee, you may know, who used to be the superintendent in Washington, D.C., who represented a lot of the reform policies I'm talking about. So the interconnection of big money and privatizing education reform is very well documented. Now, let me ask you, do you feel sometimes there are good intentions? For example, the Facebook founder uh, contributed $100 million to Newark schools. Uh, what exactly happened to that money, and was it uh, donated with good intentions? Well, you know, I think people often have good intentions. I think we're less concerned at, at, at my end with uh, the intentions than the impact. And it's interesting you should mention Newark. I work in Newark. Uh, I taught in uh, a, a town nearby Newark in Patterson for 30 years, and I've had a front row seat to see what happened uh, with the Facebook money, which largely went to promote the expansion of charters in Newark, which mm. now has about... 25% of its students enrolled in charters, and they plan to increase that to 40% by uh, the next two years, and in which the district is very quickly being dismantled. And the kids with the highest needs, the special education students, the English language students, are generally being concentrated behind in district schools, while selective charters are serving a very limited sector of the population. Um, one of the things that happened just yesterday was an election in which uh, Raz Baraka, the candidate for mayor, who's a principal, former principal at one of the public schools in Newark, and who opposed the use of the Facebook money and the whole use of um, school reform policy to kind of dismantle the district and to increase private control and private money, um, actually defeated the candidate who represented the charters and actually had started the charter himself. And I think what you're seeing with the election of de Blasio in New York, with the election of Raz Baraka in Newark, with pushback in Chicago and many other places, the actual effect on the ground of what this school reform is doing to neighborhood schools and to parental experience and kids' experience is negative enough that it's beginning to create a backlash. Absolutely. And we've seen a lot of that on Long Island, especially this last round of testing. Right. Now, now, how is this influence, this corporate influence, reflected in education, education policy debates regarding, you already touched on charter schools, but how about Common Core state standards and standardized tests? Well, I think Common Core is, you know, a good example. Um, without $160 million to $200 million from the Gates Foundation, Common Core, frankly, would not exist. Uh, basically, where Common Core came from is after 10 years, of what was essentially a test and punish regime under No Child Left Behind, where there was a big increase in testing, and then there was an increase in the number of schools who were sanctioned in various ways for not meeting the um, testing targets that were included in the law. 
which were targets, frankly, that required 100% of all kids in 10 separate subgroups to pass state tests by a certain year on a certain um, schedule that didn't reflect any real experience of any real schools anywhere. And by about 2007, uh, 2008, there were about 100,000 schools in the country. There were 60 to 70,000 schools that were on the list of schools who were failing according to No Child Left Behind. Mm. Now, many people said that the solution is to have a more appropriate role for the federal government, which shouldn't be setting test scores for every school and shouldn't be promoting so much testing. But instead, um, unfortunately, many people in the, both the federal government from both sides of the uh, political aisle, this is a Democratic and Republican movement, uh, decided that what we needed was even harder standards and harder tests. And so they adopted a process that was largely funded by the Gates Foundation, and that was designed as a state process because federal law, the federal law which helped establish the Education Department, for example, prevents the federal government from creating national standards and national tests. So in order to create the Common Core, they got private funding through the Gates Foundation that basically hired a small number of academics and education experts who were tied to testing companies who wrote behind closed doors a new set of standards, which may have had some positive intentions, but didn't have the credibility and didn't have the buy-in that you need from any kind of standards project that has to be implemented by teachers on the ground, and instead was actually part of a new round of tests, the new round of standards that was going to reproduce and may well reproduce the same narrative of public school failure that was created under No Child Left Behind, and that frankly is helping to erode the common public support that public education needs if it's going to survive and improve. Wow, this is excellent information. Um, please hold on because at this time we need to take a short break. But stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Stan Karp. If you'd like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. Uh, Stan, before we broke, you actually mentioned uh, tests and punishment. And, in fact, my next guest, who you are familiar with, wrote a book on that last year, uh, Test and Punishment. Um, how has is, how is this uh, corporate influence affected federal education policy in recent years? Well, you know, historically, federal education policy was really designed to promote uh, access and equity through support through things like school integration, extra funding for high-poverty schools through the Title I program, and services for students with special needs like the Individual with Disabilities Act. But beginning with No Child Left Behind, uh, federal policy has really switched to a much less equitable sets of mandates around standards and testing, around closing and turning around schools, which often means firing teachers. Uh, in the last five years, for example, there have been 4,000 traditional public schools closed, and many of those schools have been replaced by more privatized charter schools 
which are less accountable to public control and more selective in who they admit. So federal policy has in many ways promoted a kind of privatization in public education. Uh, one of the things that the Race to the Top program did was turn federal funds that used to be given out on the basis of need to students in high poverty or, um, you know, students with special disabilities and instead made them competitive grants that went to some states at the uh, expense of, went to some winners at the expense of losers. And so equity as a driving force of federal education policy has really decreased. And instead, we're getting a federal policy that's trying to promote that kind of market reform which ultimately will do for public education what uh, market reform is done in health care and housing and employment, create fabulous profit opportunities for a few and unequal access for most of us. Wow, that's this that's, that's sad state that we're in right now. Now, do you believe that the the numbers we're seeing when compared to other industrialized countries are accurate? That is, the U.S. falling out of the top 20 and uh student performance? Yeah, I think there are two important points to make about the use of international test scores. One is that the U.S. overall has never really scored at the top of international test scores. Uh, If you look at the documentation, for example, in Diane Ravage's book, Reign of Error, in um, some excellent work that's been done by the Economic Policy Institute, there's never been a time when high test scores among uh, U.S. public school students was connected to economic well-being. The other thing that's the unmistakable fact is that the U.S. has one of the highest child poverty rates in the world. It's in the uh, mid-20s, and that fact alone will tell you much more about the problems we have in public education than the quality of test scores. Um, If you control for poverty, if you compare our well-off kids with the well-off kids around the world, the U.S. scores well at the top. But when you include the great amount of inequality surrounding our schools, you begin to see in the test scores uh, what is, in fact, the reflection of social issues that need to be addressed and that, frankly, we're living in an age when... um, um, it's become a kind of no-excuses approach to reform, which has actually become an excuse for not addressing the central problem in, po- in public education, which is poverty and segregation. Wow. So this is so pretty much what we've done is uh, return to uh, more than 50 years ago um, and discriminating, but we're doing it through uh, different means. Is, would that be an accurate assessment? Yes, unfortunately, this Saturday, I think, is uh, the 60th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education uh, ruling, and yet the concentration of poor and black and Latino students in um, under-resourced schools uh, that are overwhelmed with uh, both social issues and a lack of support for their families, a lack of support for themselves, is, in fact, you know, one of the, the central problem in education, and instead... You know, we're kind of focusing on um, uh, issues like testing and using test scores to evaluate teachers that really are very far from the central problem we face. Mm. Now, one thing I noticed uh, is that when hiring, we see some very dynamic uh, young adults who bring a lot to the table, who really relate to the students. But it's so few positions now and it's so competitive. Uh, for example, this, you know, we, I was doing a 
hiring process re- recently for one position. And this is actually a low number. We had only 215 applicants, whereas a couple of years ago we had over five, almost 500 applicants for one position. And I'm finding that I would love to hire all of them because they, more often than not, they're bringing a lot to the table that some of my teachers who have been around a long time don't, um, are, are no longer bringing to the table. So, uh, what do you attribute that to? Do you think these policies are, are, are squeezing out, uh, some of the young, more talented teachers? Well, I think um, the research generally shows that what you you need do need experience in education. You also need um, uh, a healthy professional climate in which new people are coming into the profession, bringing the kind of energy, bringing the kind of dedication that you describe. I remember my early years. I joined something called the Urban Education Corps. Um, the Urban Education Corps was a graduate program that attempted to take someone who had just graduated from college who was interested in teaching, and give them a year-long support, a master's, a graduate degree in teaching, uh, a seminar, a weekly support, almost as a residency program where you uh, divided a teaching position with someone else, and you got the kind of support that you might get if you were going into a, another profession like medicine or something else. Now we see a lot of the, the transitional um, bringing in of young teachers, for example, in Teach for America, which is getting a lot of federal grants. These are people who are not committed to staying in education, who are only getting five weeks of training, and in many places displacing teachers who have several years of experience or many years of experience. So I think a lot of teachers feel under assault. I think a lot of teachers feel like they are being blamed for the problems of public education, and that's not a good professional climate to bring the best and the brightest into the profession. I agree, and I certainly don't want to knock our veteran teachers. I have a couple of 30-year-plus veterans who I hope can stay around a long time because they bring so much to the table and they're still as motivated today as they were when they entered the profession, so I definitely didn't want to knock them, but I just wanted to see if there's a tie-in between this assault on education and this difficulty in in bringing in the young uh, teachers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely, you know, onto something. I mean, there's certainly in, in the sense of will, um, high achieving people and people who, uh, are looking for a career where they can make a difference want to go into schools that are regimented, schools that are driven by testing, schools in which their professional, uh, ability to, um, you know, practice their craft is very limited. And also there's no doubt that there's um, places, and I know there's a lot of, um, I know personally some of the people who started rethinking schools, for example, are instrumental in introducing reforms in the Milwaukee Teachers Union that allow schools to make adjustments in seniority laws, make adjustments in regulations about who should be, um, who is a good match for a particular program or a particular school. So I I think there is definitely room for improvements in the way teachers are recruited and prepared, but I don't think it's really one of the central uh, parts of what we're seeing now in education reform. Okay. And now where can people go to find out more information about the role of corporate influence over public education policy? Well, I think there are a couple places. One is I think uh, if people – you know, do a search in Google or someplace else and look up some of the work by Joanne Barkin, B-A-R-K-A-N, who has done a series of articles for dissent on just this topic that are very accessible and filled with good information. Two other sources would be the book I mentioned before, Diane Ravitch, 
former Undersecretary of Education and a leading critic of the current reform movement, who has written a couple of books, the most recent being Reign of Error, in which he has very accessible chapters about each of the issues we've been talking about today. And then the last thing I would say that people who are interested in these topics should connect with some of the national networks which are really growing and reflecting the pushback. I, I would include Rethinking Schools, a project I've worked with that's uh, produced a publication and a network by classroom teachers for over 25 years, and another network where I did meet your next guest, John Kuhn, at a recent network for public education um, uh, conference. And the Network for Public Education and Rethinking Schools are two good places for people to keep up with this information. Okay, appreciate that. Um, briefly, are you familiar with the Danielson rubric? Yes, actually, New Jersey, about half the districts that are attempting to implement the uh, teacher evaluation mandates use that rubric. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the rubric was never intended to be used as an evaluative tool. Is that correct? Yes, actually, Danielson lives in New Jersey near Princeton and has said two very interesting things about the misuse of her rubric to create a kind of uh, data-driven evaluation of teachers, which is replacing the professional judgment of school leaders that is actually necessary to have, you know, a good collaborative school work. And the other thing she said is she is absolutely terrified about the train wreck that is about to come down the road with the new layer of common core tests, which she recalls herself trying to take and says she has several degrees and she didn't think she could pass some of these tests. So I think she's feeling very bad about the way her work is being represented these days. Actually, that's good to hear because I, I never got her, I never heard anyone mention her uh, concerns or her feedback, so thanks for that. All right, we have been speaking with Stan Karp, Director of the Secondary Reform Project for New Jersey's Education Law Center and Editor of the Rethinking Schools Journal. Stan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Stay tuned because I consider our next guest a fellow warrior for truly putting kids first in public education.